Hello, and welcome back to A Tribe of One. This was a fun episode for us to record because our special guest was our longtime advisor, Dr. Mihaela Uliru. Dr. Uliru is a technology alchemist and an innovator at the edge of the impossible. At the peak of her academic career, she founded the Impact Institute for the Digital Economy, aiming at policy reforms for the adoption of latest digital technologies in all areas of society and sectors of the economy. She's held multiple research chairs and founded two research labs at the head of numerous international research consortia. She's a total powerhouse and has helped Rob and I at Saving for a number of years, pushing us to the edge of the possible as we chart ahead for the decentralized web. She's a dear friend, mentor, and inspiration to so many. We thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with her, and we hope you do as well. Without further ado, here is Dr. Mihaela Uliru. Hey, hello everyone. Welcome to A Tribe of One, the podcast where we talk about communities that we belong to, communities that we're a part of today, and communities that we can only dream about. My name is Anke Bhatia. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Sapien. And I'm Rob Giametti, co-founder and chief of product at Sapien. And today we're bringing a very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Mihaela Larry. Uh, Mihaela is an advisor at Sapien, uh, a very close friend and uh, one of the most important people in the blockchain space. Mihaela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure and quite exciting to, to have a conversation with you, uh, Ankit, as you know, mm-hmm. since uh, the embryonic stages of Sapien, we were <laughs> talking and brainstorming and, and, you know, I never ceased to be excited about your work. Yes, yes, it's been a it's been a wonderful journey, and uh, it's so exciting to have you since the beginning. You know, when Sapien was just an idea to where it is today, and uh, it's just so amazing to work with such value line people. And yeah, really, really excited, both Rob and myself, to really dive into some of these ideas, some of the things we've been playing with, and you know, learn more about you. So to kick things off, uh, I'd like to get a sense of uh, what a tribe means to you. Well, the word. Obviously, yes, has a, a clear significance. This is how society started organizing. It, uh, since the very early times when people became humans, actually. So, so, so it's a fundamental, I would say, cell of organization of society. And of course, as society grew, these so-called tribal connections, these intimate connections have dissolved, I would say, because it is very hard to, to keep a nucleus, uh, a social uh, bond uh, in a big city, for example, like New York, but still in uh, villages, in the countryside, and of course, mostly in the not so developed world, those bonds still exist. And of course, tribes exist uh, here in North America, <laughs> they exist in Africa, they exist everywhere, and there is a lot of wisdom there. But of course, I assume your question has a different meaning. Please let me know. No, no, that's, uh, we always like to keep it a little bit open-ended and just get a sense <laughs> of, you know, what people are, are, are coming with. Everyone sort of has their own notion of tribe. 
And uh, it's always interesting to dive in. And, you know, you definitely bring up the uh, sort of same sort of social concept that uh, extends to different regions and is something that has been very fundamental to the development of the human species. So, yeah, no, that's great to hear. It's always great to start with that because, you know, this, as you know, this podcast is a tribe of one and we really like to dive deep into, you know, communities and our relationship to communities. So, you know, maybe you can walk through, I guess, some of the communities that you've been a part of, you know, since the beginning, you know, as you were growing up, uh, it'd be nice to get a sense of, you know, communities that you've been a part of. Yes, but, you know, to come back to to tribes and their meaning and their importance, I think this is a very important concept in general, which, uh, unfortunately, we, we are overlooking in terms of trust, of social bonds, of social organization, which is actually functional. The more we live separate lives, each with our own, you know, work and, and preoccupations and very loose connections, we have lost the social bonds that actually lead to an implicit trust. Because if you look at a small village where everybody knows everybody, and, you know, uh, if I live in that village and people know me and they count on me in a, and they see me in a certain way since I was born, I grew up in that community, I feel an obligation, a moral obligation towards them to be honest, to help, to support, and vice versa. But if I live in a big city where nobody knows me, you know, it is easier to be inclined to, to not be so trustworthy, to take advantage maybe at times, to not be so aware of your own behavior. So I think tribes are very important uh, and, and that we can learn a lot from their wisdom and also from how they organically organized or self-organized. There is, you know, the wise man, which is the chief, and then there are the various occupations, and everybody has and finds their place in them quite naturally through their aptitudes. We have different values now in our society, and I think many of the ills of society wouldn't be there if we would have kept that, uh, that sense of community which you are talking about that we had in the early times and which smaller communities still preserve in terms of, of tribes. I think, um, yeah. Mihaly, you hit on a really important point earlier, which is sort of the eroding of these uh, tribal bonds, if you will. I'm curious how you've seen that happen over your life and what, if, what are the most uh, critical things to look into there? What are the things that are most causing that erosion, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, when it comes to social connections in the first place, yes, is uh, there is a certain accountability when, you know, I live in a community where everybody knows me. If I go out, if I, if I do something, they know me. It's not like I'm an anonymous person and I can, for example, swear to everyone on the street and, and nothing will happen to me. Nobody knows who I am. So there is this kind of, you know, uh, Social pressure, I can call it, but it's also translated into accountability. And when it comes to social connections, uh, living in a dispersed, large society like a big city uh, where nobody knows knows us, and we move now very easily from a place to another, and, and it is not easy to create those bonds when you move somewhere versus when you grow up in the same community. There's this concept of, of the Dunbar number, like, 
okay, how many close social connections can I preserve? How many people do I know that I really feel close to? And I know their connections and I really can trust them. So once that number number is exceeded, which is kind of said to be 150, but you know, it's very personal. Everybody has a different one. Then it is very hard to actually know someone and their connections, their uh, friends, their families. So the trust factor, I think it decreases with our ability to really know deeply person slash everyone in our community. If I start a new, let, let's say life and a new job, let's say. So I, I make new connections at work. They start to know me. It takes time to actually get for them to get to know me, for me to get to know them and build trust and bond. So I think to your question, Rob, trust takes time to build, but it is so easy to lose it. You know, it takes really, really a long time to have 100% trust in someone and it can be dissolved in a second. And therefore, having a long time in a community, then this accountability, which I was mentioning due to the social pressure, is something which uh, preserves the trust and preserves uh, and keeps us on track as well, I would say. You know? So it's, um, it's not an easy, an easy issue. But in a close-knit society, I think it is much more difficult to insert those perverse incentives that um, are misguiding society today, in which everybody is, I mean, I would not say everybody, but the values are so skewed that social relationships have eroded to a very, very high extent, in which people don't trust each other, they don't trust the government. It's like all this, you know, I don't want to use the, the too much used uh, fake, fake news, fake world um, society in which we in which we live, in which I personally feel suffocated. So how how can we actually bring those social bonds and that kind of social responsibility and accountability for the self and and our actions to this world, which is now much larger? than the initial tribes. This is a question which I was trying to solve and I was hoping it can be solved or answered through social networks, through what I call the e-society. But uh, it turned out to not be such an easy thing. So I don't yeah. wish. I think it's it's really a tremendously difficult problem and something we're thinking about a lot at, at Sapien. And really, it's a large reason why we wanted to to start this podcast, because I think con having conversations really is uh, sort of the best tool to create that trust, to create that sense of community, and sort of try to to forge a a bond in the super globalized world. But uh, obviously, as you're saying, it's it's a difficult task, and uh, it seems like there's so many perverse incentives in the way of making it happening. But uh, pretty hopeful that we'll be able to to make some strides in uh, improving. Or uh, we, we had better because uh, uh, there's a lot of things at stake. Yes, and you know, and then there's the other the other side of the coin in which there's a tribal, but also spilling into the so-called crowd mentality, in which the individual dissolves themselves completely into the crowd, and then they 
assume the truth <laughs> of the crowd. So if the crowd declares that one person is bad, then, you know, I belonging to the crowd would immediately assume, yeah, they are right, that person is bad. And then I, I forget to make my own mind and preserve my own uh, judgment and, and reason. So, so there's, there are, you know, this balance between social connections, social bonds, personal accountability, trust, and on the other side also, how do I preserve my own individuality, my own ability to make a judgment and decide for myself about each and every one and also everything that surrounds me? Because let's say I'm in a crowd and they tell me and everybody believes the earth is flat. <laughs> and then, okay, well, the earth is flat because I belong to this, to this tribe. So, so there are dangers in, you know, uh, in associating yourself too much to a community and a tribe and forgetting your own individuality. And when I mentioned that social pressure, I had a bit of a hesitancy because in that social pressure, it's a lot of good for me to really be the best that I can be with my peers. But also there's a danger of me losing myself and dissolving my identity and my own ability to reason in because of that pressure. So what if I think differently about something and I think the earth is round? Wow. So do I have the courage actually to even think that or the impetus to think that or even to state it? So, yeah, it's not such an easy. <laughs> yeah. And, and Mahela, we've seen time and time in history when people get, go against the sort of uh, accepted uh, norms of the time, right? You know, immediately the book who came to mind was like Galileo, who, you know, made a claim that, you know, it wasn't uh, a heliocentric model uh, or earth-centric model for the universe, but rather, you know, things rotated around the sun. And uh, he was, you know, sort of chastised by the church and sort of religious authorities of the time. And, you know, that really, you raise a really good point, right? You know, the sort of tension between uh, individual pursuit and individual sort of opinions versus the sort of accepted view, worldview of a tribe. I think that's something that is sort of constantly in conflict. And when it's aligned, it's, it's definitely productive. But when it's misaligned, you know, we can see the consequences, right? People feel alienated. They can't quite fit in. Uh, and we see a lot of consequences from that too. Um, that, yeah. Curious if that if that tension is really a fundamental thing, if there really is a fundamental conflict between individuality and sort of that collective sense making, or if that's really just a a product of the environment that we're we're in, or this is sort of just a a manufactured. You know, so to what you were saying, Ankit, this individuality. When I heard the the tribe of one, I'm like, yes, I really like the idea because. As Rob was underlining, I am an individual and I want to belong to a tribe. So it's this duality that actually under its uh, mitigation is where I flourish and where I develop both as an individual as well as uh, part of a community. <clears throat> so I can belong to one or more tribes and yet preserve my individuality. This is immediately what I understood when I heard the tribe of one. So I think it's such a brilliant uh, name, <laughs> if I may. Yes, it, it is, of course, a contradiction, but, but that's who we are. We are contradictions because we want to belong. And on the other side, we also want to affirm ourselves as individuals. And this is the only way to help society also progress, as you 
gave the example with Galileo in order to, to see something which maybe others don't. And um, each of us have that ability, unique ability to see something which maybe others don't. And such we have a duty to contribute as well to the tribes apart from belonging to them and assimilating their ethos and identifying ourselves with that, which is so comforting, but stepping out of our comfort zone and preserving this oneness identity for ourselves, but also the oneness with the tribe. So yes, I can see a lot in, in this tribe of one. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, you're hitting on exactly why we chose this name. You know, there's so much, uh, you know, we're even trying to understand the, the sort of, you know, dissonance that can uh, sort of manifest at times between uh, being an individual and standing up for your individual uh, sort of views versus, you know, the general sort of tendencies of wanting to be a part of community and wanting to fit in. Uh, I think it's it's very interesting. And one of the reasons we started this podcast was to really dive into the uh, background of some of our, you know, amazing guests. Um, so, Mahela, you know, I do want to ask you uh, about, you know, some of the, the tribes that you've been a part of. Uh, and I, I do want to circle this back. And, you know, I'm really curious to learn more about your background. I'm sure our audience would want to know, like, where you're coming from. And yeah, just some of the communities that that you feel like you know you're a part of. Yes, and and as you know, Ankit, yeah, I, I probably those who know me know me as being very independent. So I am a very independent thinker, and therefore I thought, okay, the tribe of one. Yes, I I am my own tribe, and this is absolutely true. So I have a whole body of work in which uh, which I followed my independent thinking along the way. And this is also, of course, important in academia to find your voice and also to to find new things, to discover new things which others don't see or they cannot model it or express it in the way in which I can. I'm also a poet and that's also very unique, obviously, as you couldn't write my poems. <laughs> I'm the only one and, and vice versa. So in this regard, yes, I, I don't think I belong to many tribes in along the way. But of course, of course, yes, I, I, I have parents and family and and that is the immediate tribe, always the immediate tribe. Mm. And of course, I, I love my family. I feel very close to them. They are very warm. And um, but it's also, of course, obviously, this uh, this dichotomy as yes? my individuality and them and the pressure and so on and so forth. And then there were along the way a few opportunities where of course besides my scientific crowd let's call it yes because uh, i have my tribe there as well uh, in which uh, for example yes i i uh, deepened into a, a branch of artificial intelligence which is called fuzzy logic which was kind of a pariah at the time with probabilistic reasoning being against uh, fuzzy logic and then, of course, <laughs> with those, uh, uh, with the mentor, my mentor, Lord Fizade from Berkeley, who is the inventor of fuzzy logic, he created a community with who I felt always, yes, like like a tribe. So that was my tribe in my early scientific years since I started my PhD. And then along the way, with my uh, my desire to improve things in society. So let's call it, yes, to change the game, which is being played right now, which which brings us to destruction. I, uh, I found my tribe and they found me in what is called game B. Yes, so let's say game A is what society 
what 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 we experience right now in in this chaotic uh, uh, perverted uh, corrupt environment fakeness in which everybody is amplifying all sorts of lies and and negativity comes always to the surface and and all the worst humanity has because we are both good and bad is now surfacing somehow because of the values which we are propagating in game a and if we change and if we choose to optimize across a different set of values which are actually enhancing humanity and contribute to everyone's flourishing that is game b i would say then it's much better so i have that is right now my tribe and i'm very proud of it and i do not know if you guys know Eisenstein, and uh, of course many others. I don't want to to give names because I would do so much injustice to those who I don't name. But there are so many wonderful people who belong to this new game, and uh, and they are. I feel they are my tribe. Although I'm not with them every day, even if I'm not with them in person, I feel that I belong that family i think that the concept of the the game a versus game b is uh really uh very interesting and something that i feel like everyone is sort of grappling with and trying to find find meaning right it feels like so much of the the system that's set up today the economic system you know the social structures that are dependent on that economic economic system are sort of yeah not designed to to put humans first and i'm curious uh what you think are really the the next steps forward to advance and to change um, change that game, right? To get more people involved in, in that game. Yeah, so, you know, I can give you a, 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 an example which I think fits very well uh, with your tribe of one <laughs> metaphor here. So I don't know if you are in for your audience and if not, you should go, you guys should check it out. You know about Buckminster Fuller and, uh, and his amazing work. One of his masterpieces being operating manual for spaceship Earth. So, so Bucky Fuller uh, was a visionary. He, he wrote 32 books. He invented many things, and uh, uh, among which the geodesic dome and so on and so forth. So, he invented a new way of looking at uh, at things and at the world, which is much more organic and in tune with the universe and with the universal laws. And he decided that his place is not in this world, which is game A, let's call it game A. And he dissected this world versus the ideal world in one of his seminal books, which is called Critical Path. So he concluded that, you know, he is here for a reason. So why did the universe, why did nature create humans? That was his fundamental question. And he found an answer, again, coming to, back to Galileo and to, you know, um, Kepler and, and those who looked at the universe and its laws, and then generalizing the laws to all the planets and, and the whole universe and galaxies. He concluded that we humans are here in order to have this ability of abstraction to find the general principles by which the universe works, but also to use those principles in our life to make our lives better and that our purpose is simply to flourish and that there are more than enough resources on spaceship earth that nature has created before we were created and it keeps creating in order to sustain us and each and every one of us can be sustained 
and uh, you know in abundance but for game a which divides the world into those who have and the have not because of those perverse incentives and not giving a chance to the others so fuller has created an experiment he decided he stepped out of any social structure and of any you know, he also left Harvard <laughs> and, and then he decided to be the one man experiment and to prove that one man and what can one man alone achieve outside all these power structures without a bank account, without <laughs> working for a big firm, without money, without anything, or by his creativity. And he achieved so much. So, so he also documented that. So it is, you know, he, he, he postulated and he showed a way, which is the operating manual, right, in which we can all live, create, produce, and interact and live together with each other, which is what I call game B. Uh, I, I do not know if I, if, if you got my, <laughs> my answer, but, but uh, it is uh, the best example I can give you of, a, of, of game B. That's uh, really fascinating, and it reminds me of some, an idea I've heard recently, which is sort of the idea that sort of ideas themselves are really uh, living things, you know, and maybe that sort of uh, ties back to this idea of Game B, that really what we should be focusing on is the advancement of ideas and providing the right environment for ideas to flourish as uh, living things, right? And it really doesn't necessarily come back to people, but people are the ones that create these ideas. but and I, I think it's evident in sort of the internet itself and memes, right? The the power of ideas to spread and just the this notion that ideas themselves are are living in in a very interesting way and propagating and evolving. And uh, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on on that perspective, uh, Mahila, and if that connects to your your concept of game. So you know the main the main problem, the main point. Also, which Bucket Fuller makes, but and he explains it very well in Critical Path, is you know how the power structures have been formed and then preserved. So when power structures appeared, you know, like a king, people chose a king, and then how that happened was like you know, okay, someone on horses <laughs> came to a village where people were living in harmony with each other, and and work was distributed, and you know, like exactly that fundamental tribe cell where we started from. And then they told those people, let's say they they had cattle or crops, that they are there sent by the king to, uh, let's say, protect them. And they said, we don't need any protection. I mean, no, nobody is stealing here. We, are, we know each other. Yes, we know a tribe. And then they started to steal from, from them and at that point, oh, they thought, uh oh, okay, so maybe we need protection. <laughs> so when they, at night, the same ones who were were telling them to be to, to protect them, they cheated and were stealing. And then they hired them, okay. And and actually, they when they wanted to hire them to protect them, but then they said, no, this is the land of the king. Oh, so actually, you are going, you are living on our land. And you will have to pay us a portion of your goodies there, whatever you are working. So, so this has perpetuated and it has become a monster in our days because not only that, I mean, yes, now we obviously buy land and land belongs to me or to you. And that's the supreme 
value now in the game A thing that who owns the land makes the rules and who mm. owns the money makes the rules. Mm. So with these incentives, there is very little chance that those who are, let's say, born in a have not family in those, like, like in the tribe, initial tribe, right? Where they were very happy there and, and, and didn't care that even, you know, they have poems about how can I own the land? I mean, this land is sacred. It's not mine. It feeds me and I'm so happy to be here and that I can eat from it and take care of it and cherish it. So it's such a different attitude when when you transform that into a possession. Oh yeah, it's mine. So I do whatever I want with it. I can fish from the oceans as much as I want. I can deprive the land as much as I want. I can I can do anything on this planet and forget the operating manual that uh, the tribes so well actually are applying without having read <laughs> Bucky Fuller's book. Right. So, so this is, this is, yes. So we, we are born now in, in some fundamental structures, which are fundamentally wrong. And we need to start all over in order to, to undo this. Yeah. And I think the main thing is, is education. So I think your, you know, your podcast is one way. The fact that you are building Sapien Network also is another way. So I also would like now to ask you, <laughs> I know that Sapien Networks also uses or used the concept of tribes. So, so how do you see that in the context of our discussion? Is there any way in which we can maybe change the game also through technology in this way? Into mm. more game B. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons why we, we've been so fascinated with the idea of the tribe and this push to use technology to create some of these more, you know, non zero sum environments where all the tri tribes can flourish together, right? So, you know, the way that we really think about Sapien is not, you know, it's not, you know, as compared to like, you know, establishment social media platforms, there isn't this sort of top down hierarchy. Uh, that's sort of bucketing people into communities based on, you know, what keeps them on the platform longer, right? We're arguing for a fundamentally different uh, and emergent structure that arises from the tribe, right? And we believe that this is a better way to construct social because ultimately it reflects our natural sort of organic sort of ways that we sort of find community. And what we see right now with, you know, platforms like Facebook and Twitter is that, you know, they're not really respecting this sort of natural community driven approach. Uh, and what we're seeing with the, you know, blockchain space and Web3 is that there's more and more platforms coming out now that sort of more accurately reflect the structure uh, of the tribe and create a system that, you know, better preserves the uh, sort of relationship with the individual to the tribe. And this is something that, you know, we've spent a lot of time just thinking about and, and you know, just sort of planning like how, how it would work uh, in the system. And that's why, you know, it's amazing to talk to uh, these different perspectives. But Rob, I want to throw it to you too and, you know, get your sense on, on this question too. Yeah, I think really the most important point here is really truly respecting the, the sovereignty of, of the tribe, right? Mahela, you were talking about the example earlier where the king comes to, to collect, collect his taxes and maybe that's sort of ultimately undermining the, the structure that the community had that was working perfectly well uh, before that intrusion. And I think the, the most promising 
part about blockchain is that it offers an alternative to let these communities find their own way while maintaining their own sovereignty and their own ownership over their, their shared creation without having to depend on these external uh, systems, these established hierarchies to make their own, forge their own path in the world. Yes, and, and this, you know, sovereignty and, and ability to self-organize and create their own modus vivendi, a way of living, is absolutely crucial. So this is something which we are also experimenting with on the Cardano side in Project Catalyst. I do not know if you guys are aware of this project, in which we engage the community in deciding which projects should be funded from the Cardano treasury. So the holders of, of the token are actually in, you know, called to decide, to make decisions together. So this is a tribe as well, you know, like, like the Sapien is a tribe and every community has its own. But of course, Sapien gives the opportunity of several tribes to find their own voice and individuality. And I, I think that is very, very special because not, uh, I haven't seen that realized in many environment and i think this is this may be who knows yes the crux of of a solution to the so-called social dilemma if i may use the movie title mm. uh, so yeah it's uh, it's very interesting with this sovereignty of the tribe right. and also yeah yeah please yeah no this is uh this is something that uh has interested us both from a you know technological and, and philosophical uh, perspective. And uh, I, I wonder if you feel like the uh, crypto space, uh, you know, obviously it does have this sort of tendency to be quite libertarian in, 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 in most views. I believe Charles also from Cardano is a libertarian or at least uh, self-identified. Uh, I'm curious if you sort of see that as the dominant philosophy in this space, or is it closer to something like an anarchy or, you know, uh, anarchy, anarcho-syndicalism? I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Just adding on to that, uh, if you think that, that that tendency is sort of something that gets in the way of uh, coming together and claiming the sovereignty at a community. Well, Europe, you tried to, to answer for me, but it's not going to work this way. So, so Ankit, you know, if we look, if we all go back, yes, yeah, so, and, and I am very concerned these days with creating movements, you know, it's obviously, yes, in order to step into a new game and to create a new game, you have to step out of the current game. And how do you do that, right? I mean, get off Facebook, where I have never been, because I knew from the start that it's built on the wrong premises, get off Twitter or whatever, you know, other social networks which are out there, which are centralized and, and dysfunctional, get off, you know, banks and so on. So coming back to, to the crypto community, they started as a movement against the banks and they started for good reason in 2008. And they started, you know, again, from first principles, like Bucky Fuller was saying that it's the mathematics <laughs> that speaks. So now it's code is law. So let's play a different game. And, and, you know, I'm discussing about movements because I am, you know, you know me, right? I, I, I see myself as a catalyst for movements and I created many movements and consortia and, and so on and so forth along my career and uh, along my, my life. But lately, a very wise philosopher, 
Daniel Schmachtenberger, I don't know if you know him, he brought to my awareness, I can say, because it was like a, a cold shower, this reality that actually movements have to emerge and they cannot be catalyzed. That once you hold the flag and create a movement behind you, already the perverse incentives are there because I want to keep this movement. So, so he puts it in this way. I'm going to solve your problem. Yes. So here I am with whatever I create, an institute, an organization, or me and myself, I'm going to solve your problem. But if this is my mission to solve your problem, then I want the problem to perpetuate so I can keep my mission and my position there as a flag bearer. But you see, Nakamoto, he just, you know, he threw out the solution without bearing the flag as a person. So that is why and how this community has emerged. So it could emerge. So you cannot do it in any other way. You have to let it emerge. As such, uh, whatever words you use, yes, anarchist, libertarian, I don't think it's about that. I would say libertarian, yes, because I just don't want to be in any of the systems which are out there. I, I don't want to be, I'm not left, I'm not right. I am with gang B. Like, okay, you can call me libertarian. I don't, I'm not left, I'm not right, I don't belong to any system as it is right now. Okay, you can call me anarchist, but it's not about how you call me, it's about what I am doing. And I think Nakamoto is a good example because you referred to the crypto community. So it's not about the founder, but it is about creating the conditions for a, mo a new thing to emerge as a movement. And this is what he did. And mm. then, of course, now the banks are using it and so on and so forth. And that, that's another thing. Yes. How do we actually preserve the purity of such a new creation when people are so easily corruptible? Let's put it this way. And of course, now they are using the concept, the invention and everything else to enrich themselves. Uh, to, you know, the mm. banks, of course, now to, to make more money and the system to perpetuate even more and even stronger using this new creation. Right. Okay. And, and, and Mahila, I really feel like that's one of the strongest arguments for Bitcoin, right? A lot of the sort of uh, the Bitcoin community definitely uh, resonates with the idea that the way that Satoshi launched it, you know, the actual way that the code was released and then he kind of just... Um, uh, left the scene, you know, I think, I think that's something that is truly, uh, admirable. Um, uh, but the, the question then becomes like, how, how feasible is that? And, and is that the only sort of path forward, right? If you look at sort of the opposite of that, you know, you might think about, uh, Vitalik from, uh, Ethereum or Charles running Cardano. Uh, that's, isn't that sort of the antithesis of the, uh, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto approach of, you know, deploying software, making code law, and then exiting to community. I feel like there's a stark contrast there. I mean, and we, I don't know if we can strictly say that the uh, Satoshi approach was was better. I think it almost served a different purpose, right? Because Bitcoin is supposed to be analogy, uh, analogous to digital gold. But when it comes to sort of developing technology, I think, you know, especially disruptive technology, there needs to be people accountable to some degree. And, and I'm really fascinated with this sort of concept of exiting to community. At some point, uh, once things are sophisticated enough and uh, sort of running on their own, you can exit to some sort of DAO or, you know, basically hand it off in a way that is more decentralized. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this too, given all your sort of research with holarchies and 
uh, sort of different ways of uh, self-governance. Do you think that this is just sort of a dream that people have that, uh, you know, perhaps one day there will be no uh, authority besides the DAO, the, the code itself is the supreme authority that sort of uh, arbitrates and figures out uh, how to interpret different smart contracts? Uh, or is that just a sort of idealistic view that may never actually manifest? So you, you, you touched a lot of, on a lot of points there, and I'm going to go back to them because I want to address them. So you mentioned now Charles, <laughs> just because you mentioned him, I do not know why you were picking on him and known Vitalik because there are so no, many so, other blockchains. Yeah, just to yeah. give examples, right? But that's just because because I mentioned Cardano, <laughs> obviously, because I work with them, and that's fine. That's great. Yes, <laughs> but but I want to address it in general anyway, but also with regard to Charles because you mentioned him. So I was mentioning Project Catalyst, in which actually Charles is uh, supporting that, and he starting, he has set the seeds of this project from his desire to give um, the community... Michaela, sorry, sorry to jump in. Maybe uh, for our audience, if you could explain Cardano as well, just from a high level, I think that would uh, that would help a lot too. For Okay, yes, I will do that. But after I finish this idea, which I started right now, yes. So he, he started Project Catalyst from that uh, desire to actually give the community the opportunity to self-organize and manage the Cardano treasury by itself so that in five years, his declared intent in five years from now, the community will be self-organized to an extent to which he will be obsolete. So he will not be needed. So he created those, he, he did implant those seeds. And now we are the project catalyst is already at fund five, and we are working and doing a lot of research on self-organizing communities and governance uh, models. We are working with Governance Alive, with John Buck, the inventor of sociocracy, and experimenting with several models because we want in five years the community to be on its own and the Cardano community to manage the Cardano treasury. I do not know what's happening at Ethereum. I, I don't talk to Vitalik, uh, not that definitely not as I talk to Charles. So I do not know their plans, but I think what Charles is doing is brilliant. I would consider him and call him the mother Teresa of blockchain. And uh, time will tell, but I know, I know his intent. And uh, his intent is one and his personality is another thing. So I don't know. If, you know, seeing him as a libertarian or self-declared libertarian is, is something to be judged. I think, what else can you be in this world? I think being independent, yes, is, is, is who he is. And I am as well. And I think all of us are. I don't know about you. Uh, at Sapien, I, I, you know, I think we, we are all in the same tribe, that we, in the sense mm. that we, we stepped out of the structures which mm. are not working. So with regard to Cardano, we are a third generation blockchain. So so it is, maybe you want to guide the conversation because <laughs> to tell your audience what is Cardano is, I do not know what you want me to tell them. Oh, just just some of the uh, people who might be interested. Just, just ask me short questions. Okay. Yeah. That is a, I mean, yeah. So what, what do you want me to tell them? 
uh, just or maybe you tell them. <laughs> sort of My understanding is that you know it's a it's a it's a sort of a different uh, approach entirely to Ethereum, right? The way that Ethereum works is that you know they have a system live. It's second uh, largest um, you know by market cap. Uh, we have t- you know tons of DApps there. Uh, that are building there, and they're sort of uh, in the process of upgrading to Ethereum 2.0, right? So there's this uh, massive engineering effort uh, and overhaul that they're doing uh, in a fairly decentralized way where they have multiple teams sort of coming together, doing research and uh, attempting to uh, improve the scalability of the blockchain, uh, the Ethereum blockchain. And uh, Cardano, I think, is taking a different approach, a very scientific approach, right? Where, you know, there's, you know, publication after publication, uh, and I, I feel that, you know, Charles has some of the brightest minds working at Cardano uh, to create sort of the the next generation of a next generation blockchain for all sorts of use cases. Right. So that's that's sort of my uh, understanding of Cardano and, uh, you know, how it sort of compares to Ethereum. But I don't know if I wanted to ask you if I'm if I'm missing anything in my take. I mean, there are, there are so many versions of blockchains. I do not think it's versus Ethereum or not. I mean, in the end, there will be a symphony of blockchains. And Charles is, you know, so he is actually not involved with Cardano. He did put those seeds and, and, and the community is Cardano. But Charles is the CEO of uh, IOG or IOHK because it started in Hong Kong. So those are the developers of Cardano. But they are developing many other products, not necessarily on Cardano, like identity products. And and we work with me as a as a member of IOG. We work with several other blockchains. We are teaming up with them, and we are teaming up with with other blockchain communities. Like Singularity Net wants to run on several blockchains as well. Singularity Net started on Ethereum, just like you did, guys, and they are now. Uh, embarking also on Cardano, but that doesn't mean they will leave Ethereum completely. For now, they are more happy with Cardano because Ethereum didn't reach, uh, I mean, they are at an impasse with the fees and a lot of stuff, but of course they are working on it and uh, we will see yes, how they will evolve. We are excited to see all of them succeed because to us, you know, they are our let's say other tribes which are aligned with us and leaving <laughs> the old system so aligned with our mission in this regard so that's how i that's how i are looking at it right right yeah and uh, you know and, and stepping back uh and i want to tie this back to you know game b that you introduced do you feel like uh as a uh sort of industry how is is crypto and blockchain the uh, one of the solutions, or I don't know, maybe a subset of solutions for the game B perspective uh, or approach. How, how do you sort of see the two in relationship with each other? I think there are a lot of things which uh, we, as game B, let's call it <laughs> game B. I, I, I am game B. This is definitely my tribe. Mm. I dedicated my life to it. This is not going to change. And, and and I love my peers with all my heart. So I'm dedicated to that. The thing is that um, we can learn a lot from, from how the crypto movement was created and, and also what it stands for and what it fights, what it actually is not. So definitely, yes, it is not game A. Of course, many are still at heart in game A, and I'm talking about the day traders and those who just want to get rich 
uh, from crypto, but I'm not talking about them here. They are not my game B peers. I'm talking about the lessons, as I mentioned, with, uh, with uh, Nakamoto and creating a movement and believing in something and the ethos of the community. And of course, uh, the technology itself, yes, decentralization, as, as you know, coming back to, as Rob was saying, the sovereignty of the tribe, I think that's, that's one way to achieve it. And probably this is what, why you are using blockchain as well, in order to achieve and preserve that sovereignty, both of the individual as, as well as of the tribe. So, so this technology is enabling a lot of uh, tricks of the trade for game B. I think that is the broad answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah, Rob? I'm, yeah, I'm curious, uh, how do we prevent this, uh, all the infrastructure that's being set up in the crypto blockchain space from being captured by that, uh, these game A actors who obviously have a lot of financial incentives for continuing things the, the way they are? And, you know, you, I, I'm coming back to question which, you know, there were too many questions uh, when you asked this question, <laughs> Rob, and therefore I didn't get to it, but you see, now it's time for it. So you mentioned the DAO, right? I remember on a podcast, which was about artificial intelligence, uh, because of my involvement with Singularity Net, and I'm also a great supporter and, and fan of, uh, of Ben Gertel and his work uh, with artificial intelligence for good. So I was... I was saying on that podcast that I trust artificial intelligence more than I trust people, which is a very sad reality. Speaking to your, to your question, Rob, yes, we grow up, you know, unfortunately, and this is why education is so important. We grow up in these structures, in this system in which the best Harvard graduates are practically taught and become experts in creating Ponzi schemes for that will serve the banks, you know, and then uh, derivatives and whatever else, you name it, which will lead to the next social collapse and the next financial collapse. So we just are born and grow up believing that this is the way it is and that's how it should be. And, and then suddenly we find ourselves like, okay, why am I doing this? Why am I in this job? Okay, I had so much money in the house and I'm not happy. And I spoke to so many people who are in this situation. Nakamoto came and threw out the infrastructure. Okay, here we are. Let the system work for itself. The DAOs can do the same. So I would trust the DAO with the rules of, with the, rules of the game, as you mentioned, Rob, to actually enable or help us stay on track, if, if, if you get my point. So like, for example, okay, uh, we are in a community and we want to contribute to the commons Let's say through taxes, yes, to, to preserve the parks, the, the uh, natural resources, and so on and so forth. But of course, maybe me as an individual don't want to pay those taxes, and I want to do something behind the scenes. Well, the DAO would take care that things are being done right and that everybody contributes their share. There are many other examples, obviously, probably taxes is something which your audience will not like right now because it's kind of tax season. <laughs> so it would be a fashionable example. But of course, yes, so, so very similar to how uh, the Bitcoin uh, infrastructure works, the DAOs can also, yes, law, code is law, yes, and, and then I have it already in the structure and I cannot default. This would be the idea. I think that's the answer to. Hmm. Here's a here's a sort of a follow up to that. You know, who actually enforces consequences 
in the world where code is just law. Like, you know, if you do default on a loan or, you know, you uh, don't end up paying taxes, you know, who, who is the enforcer there? I think the question, the important question is who makes the rules and how we make them. Because once we have the rules in the infrastructure, and if we are on blockchain, then they will be respected. I mean, try to, of course, yeah, uh, try to, to cheat the, the Bitcoin <laughs> system. It, it, it's kind of hard. So, so once I have it in the DAO, I don't need to enforce because it's enforced through the rules, through the smart contract. So the smart contract runs when it has to run and it is guaranteed that it will run. But how do I write it? I think that is the question. Who makes the rules and how do we make them in order to, I mean, do we have the wisdom to really make them so that we create that flourishing society? I think that is the main question, especially right. that that wisdom has been lost. Our education system is, you know, I don't want to use bad words, but it's definitely very bad, <laughs> to say the least. And, and very corrupt and, and teachers are under pressure to give big grades because otherwise the school will not get funded and so on and so forth. They're the same with academic grants and academia and, and, and everything else. How, how money is spent uh, is you know, disgrace. But anyway, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's a smart contract is enforcing. I think that's the answer to your question. But how well, do I, uh, oh, I think. I mean, that, that's part of it, right? I, I want to just uh, add one more thing before handing it off or up to you. But I, I really feel that, you know, the government still has to make a choice with the acceptance as well. And I was, I was listening to uh, Aaron Brook sort of uh, talk about this recently. And one of the, the issues is, right, what if the government comes in and sort of, you know, uh, makes it illegal to transact in Bitcoin, right? In the sense that, sure, the transaction itself is not being monitored. But uh, any sort of trades with merchants is going to be recorded. Because at the end of the day, you know, your your good, you know, a sweater that you might you might have ordered is getting shipped out. So, you know, I really wonder if the, you know, at least in the U.S., right, if the Federal Reserve is ready to hand off more control to cryptocurrencies, and what would be their sort of, I mean, there will be conflict there, right, and uh, just sort of how that transition could look in an ideal scenario where the governments are actually embracing crypto. Uh, and I don't quite have a clear picture of that. Uh, I wonder if you do. <laughs> I think what you're saying, you know, is a very good reflection of the confusion which is in society today. Yes, I mean, you're, you're clearly speaking from inside the system, not outside. The system. So let me tell you how, how I see it from outside the system and from game B. I mean, I know how the government, yes, I mean, I'm practically, I don't want to say that, okay, it's going to disappear tomorrow, but it's clear that how the government dysfunctions today is not the way, yes, and, and this is going to continue, and that's not going to be a peaceful transition. It's not going to be a transition now that the U.S. government is going to allow crypto and, and the change, the radical change of game, and they will <laughs> jump ship now and join us. Not going to be the case, yes. So that is even not the point. The point is to create the premises for people to join the movement. That doesn't have to do in any way with the U.S. government. I mean, I think that you know uh, will at most uh, diminish its power very gradually. And that's why you know when Charles says that he is libertarian slash independent, they will be more and more independent who are going to jump ship and they will create and co-create the governance. 
and those roads were flourishing. So I do not see it as a as a peaceful transition or anything like that. No, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I wish, but it's not. What I think the the most promising uh, part of blockchain and yeah, tying back to this point is that it sort of creates that free market for for ideas and elevates it to the level of these highest institutions that we see today, right? There's, of course, it depends a lot on people with uh, smart people that are able to define these rules. But I think there are a lot of those people out there, a lot of people that are really working hard to try and build better systems. And I, I think the, the beauty of blockchain is that we're not dependent on some single persons from within some institution making it happen. But there's really uh, an opportunity for competition and really the best ideas succeeding at the end of the day. But uh, it is, I think, a big concern how that uh, transition period will will work. And if the institutions that wield tremendous power today are really, really prepared for it, because I think, Mahila, as you were saying, there's it doesn't look right now like it's going to be a peaceful, easy transition there. But uh, I think we all hope that there is a, a peaceful way, way forward. I, you know, I, I agree broadly with, with how you put it, Rob. So, you know, so it, it, I'm talking about game B here, which is a completely different kind of game or a different kind of the game which the government is playing, well, which corporations are playing and they are all in the same bed in game A. So game B is the undercurrent, you know, this this podcast, which you hopefully are also listening to, you know, which which are not the mainstream news, not the mainstream TV. And I think where you actually have a, a, a great point, Rob, is the education. Yes, so we definitely need these luminaries now to have a voice and a platform and to give them that platform. So I do not know. I, I'm hoping you guys are doing that. And obviously, <laughs> with this podcast, it, it, you prove that you are doing that. And and um, so education is number one. So you know, let me let me tell you. So one of the founding fathers, I don't know exactly right now which of them. One of the founding fathers, and I heard this from Daniel Schmachtenberger. He said, if he would be to choose between perfect government and perfect education. You would choose perfect education because if people are educated, then they can create a perfect government for themselves. If they are not and in ignorance, they will just, you know, follow whatever race or, or fed or chimera uh, the, the current system and the power structures are throwing at them in order to pre preserve their power and their structures. So, so, so this is number one, people to be educated. And these undercurrents and this kind of podcasts are what contributes to that. And it is creating a tipping point. And that is, yes, where the transition at most can be regarded as a tipping point. But you know the book, which <laughs> introduced the tipping point, it's called Collapse. So something will have to collapse. And that will be obviously game A. But for this, we need to get to that tipping point. And education will, will lead us there. Then you also said something about this market of ideas. It seems to me that we are not missing that. We have a lot of ideas and we have markets for them, but the markets are driven by their own incentives. Again, those markets, yes. So those ideas are now not used for me and you, 
to improve my life necessarily. They are used for uh, investors to increase their pockets. <laughs> they are, and for others, yes, a, a very small community that clusters around those ideas to get more rich at the expense of what? Of me paying in a certain way. How? Through fake news and advertisements, which I have to swallow for Facebook to get more and more money. So it's, um, I don't think the ideas and the marketplace for ideas is the problem. I think the problem is, again, the perverse incentives. So how do we actually create a, a platform for the ideas to be shared and, and for everyone to benefit from them, not to contribute to an even bigger discrepancy and, and, and enforcement of the Maybe you're talking elaborate what you meant with this. Mm. Yeah. So I, I do think there is room for the, the market of ideas. I think it's sort of just constricted now at the upper levels, right? At, at a certain point, you hit a, a barrier, which is the current uh, legal institutions, the economic institutions that are at the, the top of the, the pyramid of the current markets. And I think blockchain maybe points to a, an alternative path forward there. But I, I do think education is really uh, very important. And that's maybe one of the reasons I'm most excited about universal basic income, right? I think one of the main barriers in the way of education right now is people have to work so much just to, to survive, right? And there's that really saps away your attention to focus on anything, let alone learn anything new, right? So I think that's a really, really promising way forward, but I, I don't think we should be waiting on uh, existing institutions to, to implement that. I think maybe that can be done uh, within the, the framework of uh, Game B or within uh, crypto, within some organizations. But And, and yeah, you really... know, because you mentioned education, I just wanted to, to bring your attention to a new project, which is called the Consilience Project. Consilienceproject.org. That's the website. And this project aims to create a forum for a redefining concepts in society and mainly pointing to the blind spots of, uh, you know, so what would be the ideal situation of how we would govern ourselves to create a flourishing society? And what is the reality today? And it takes them one by one every every step of the way and compares them and opens you know people's eyes to to those those realities very much like like if you are doing with your podcast so so this is definitely definitely crucial and I, I agree with what you say that blockchain has a role here I mean at least decentralization yes it, it's it's crucial and because because actually what blockchain does and or can do because it doesn't do it by itself. It's, it's, it does it by design. And we know from Mitch Kapoor that architecture is politics. So how we architect our systems, how we architect our infrastructures, if it's centralized or decentralized, it is crucial in how society and culture will evolve and, and who we worship. I mean, are we respecting the individual or are we a mass of <laughs> amorphous things uh, in the hands of the power structures and, uh, and that they can, you know, hurt us uh, in whatever way you want, uh, they want by simply uh, manipulating our uh, evolutionary, I call them evolutionary impediment, our limbic systems 
you know, with, okay, so what would they like to see now? I know that Mihaela is interested in this and that. Okay, well, well I'm going to show her this image and then I'm going to get her to the rabbit hole. <laughs> and, and she forgets about what matters and everything else or being for hours there on whatever platform, uh, reading news or, or whatever feeds. So, so how, how do we help people to regain their autonomy? It is important, and I think that's where where decentralization has an important role. I wrote an article, you can find it on my LinkedIn, which is called The Logic of Liberty Resides in Decentralized Communities. And I think, you know, now uh, looking at, at, at what you're doing here with the tribes and at Sapien Network, I think that's what it is, actually. You are creating a platform for, for several decentralized communities to actually have a voice and, and for individuals to cluster around common interests and and what actually defines them at their core, and that is amazing. You know, it is it is a new way, it is a new way of enabling individuals to express themselves. And maybe that's also platform that can be that free market of ideas where okay, so I feel more inclined to to join this tribe because okay, I like the ideas which are expressed here versus the other tribe. But my question now uh, is, do you think that this can lead, and this may be good or bad, I don't know, I, I'm not making any judgment, but this may lead to, let's say, tribes fighting against each other, which actually is a reality. This happened in, in North America, yes? I mean, I have many chiefs of tribes, <laughs> very good friends of mine, who are also very smart, and, and they keep telling me, because I was working with them on community currencies for the tribes and then the tribe wanted to have their own currency and then they told me you're not going to manage to unify tribes because that's how they emerged they were fighting each other mm. for resources for this and that so do you think that will happen also in sapia oh absolutely right you know if we're if we're going towards a system of uh uh, you know a free market of ideas as rob was saying right that that exists at the community level as well right and you know you'll have tribes with different structures sort of competing against each other. And uh, that's one one element that uh, we'd like to capture in, in sort of our digital social platforms, right? The ability to create, you know, better and better communities uh, and better places to spend your time ultimately. And uh, the idea of conflict isn't, uh, isn't new, right? Like, it, you know, there's always been sort of uh, tension between different communities and, you know, sometimes it's resolved peacefully, sometimes it's not. And I wonder what that will look like in the digital space, you know, what a digital war would even look like. But uh, yeah, Rob, I see you. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen some of that already with uh, meme warfare or <laughs> the like. But uh, yeah, I think there are paths forward that are, are uh, involve really uh, just discussion, right? And letting these communities align on the things, the shared values that they have and you know, they may diverge on some points, but uh, I think setting up this uh, this place for them to to explore and to really move forward, I don't think there it's necessarily as constrained as the existing world. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily as much scarcity in the world of ideas as there is in the the natural world. So I'm pretty optimistic that uh, there will be a a bright path forward for many of these communities. Yeah, and I, I do want to uh, jump in. Amela, with uh, sort of our next question, you know, about about the tribes that you feel like in your in your experience that you've come in conflict with. Uh, really curious to learn if you've uh, 
you know, fought with any tribes. This is what I wanted to address, but from another angle, because, uh, so, you know, we, uh, and, and you mentioned the peaceful transition from game A to game B, which obviously, yes, if you cannot have peace between tribes, how would we have this peaceful transition between two tribes which are so opposite, yes, game A and game B, if we mm. have to call them so. So, but there is, um, you know, there are ways to resolve conflict. And I think this is very important, what you and Robert were talking about there with this conflict resolution. Yes, there is conflict, but I think we can resolve it. And we can resolve it, and that's, that I think, connected to your question, uh, if I'm in conflict with, with tribes. For me, the conflict is eternal, yeah, obviously. I mean, I'm in conflict with game A, end of story. <laughs> so, so but, but I avoided very big part of this conflict. Why? Because First of all, I've never got myself, let's say, on Facebook or stuff like that. I, I have a good sense of, of technology and, and intuition, and, and I know math, and I understand a lot societally, and so on and so forth. But also, as an academic, that, that's why it's called the Ivory Tower. I mean, I, I could be myself and have my voice and publish. And uh, of course, yes, that's not everybody liked what I was thinking and so on and so forth, but I didn't consider it conflict. It's constructive, right? I mean, if they give you feedback, they agree or disagree, but in academia, it's... so I didn't really get into much conflict. I can say that what I tried in my work and, and I was mainly called to advise governments and so on and so forth, and, and I did my best to, let's say, help them see the light, and many did. As soon as sometimes some big companies, I, I will not name them here, but it was, they were, these were very short stints with those companies and mainly uh, using technology to, to support them to be better and, and better actors in society. And sometimes it didn't work. And they told me openly, we're not there yet. <laughs> so they just couldn't play a game B from where they were. So maybe if you want to call that conflict, that's okay. But coming back to your tribes and the conflict, you know, we are experimenting now, as I mentioned, with this project Catalyst, and obviously, yes, with the community. The community consists of diverse individuals, and they have to decide on proposals. How do we spend the treasury money? How do we vote on this versus that idea? And this is a marketplace of ideas. That project Catalyst, if you go to it, you will see that's what it is. The community creates proposals. And then the community votes on them, how, and, and funds them to see them through. But of course there are conflicts, yes? Some with like one proposal, others like another one, and so on and so forth. And that's why we are working with governance alive to find a way to resolve conflict. I don't want to call it peacefully, but I would call it respectfully. And I think there are a few principles which they have. I don't want to give them out because it is their work and, and you can read sociocracy book. It's all about listening to each other with respect, creating circles and then resolving things within the circle and circles. Let's say one tribe is called circle, yes, and another tribe. And, and then you have representatives from each circle talking to each other and then joining one, one representative from the tribe which is in conflict with the other will join the other tribe. and discuss their, their, what they have to say and their different opinion and then comes back to their tribe and so on. So there's a lot of discussing and, but, but the main idea is to respect a, a different opinion, to try to understand and empathy is very important. So they are cultivating this, things which we forgot in our society, especially after the bullying Trump era, yes, because that was the era of bullying. And, and it's like, okay, there's something obviously visceral in us from the times when we were probably, you know, part of the 
uh, orangutan <laughs> family still that there is yes this uh, i want to bully and pound my chest that i'm stronger than you and so on and so forth and that i will prevail but now there are other ways yes we we, we have reached this um, human species yes sapient <laughs> level which which Bucky Fuller was saying so we have the capacity to respect each other and to to accept different opinions and at least respect them and tell the other tribe yes i respect your opinion but i still stand with my with my opinion but there's also a sense of reverence for for the other human and developing an ability to actually live life from their shoes if i would be this person how would i see the world would i really i mean maybe i would understand them at most and then i think a solution or a middle way middle ground can be found easier Plutocracy, I mean, at least governance alive is, is I think, amazing uh, in doing that. Uh, I hope it answers your question, Ankit. I, I don't feel it conflict, at much conflict, uh, direct conflict, mm. with, except with corruption. <laughs> right, right. With all the game uh, <laughs> mechanics. Mm. Yes, big conflict there. Yeah. And it's, going, it's not going to end. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I feel like actions speak a lot louder than than words here. And uh, you know, I certainly appreciate over the years all the effort you've made uh, to advance. You know, game game B. I think we're all sort of uh, whether we know it or not. You know, sort of advancing advancing that. I wonder if there's a sort of a formal process to you know apply for the game B tribe, or you know, I'm curious how the tribe itself is structured, and you know, what would be the the process to sort of join forces and you know collaborate to to go further. We, we tried many models, Ankit, and so we tried, for example, so Jim Rod and Jordan Greenhall, uh, they, actually Jordan Hall, now his name, he changed his name. So they created a network and um, the network was called the light net as opposed to the dark net, if you read the book. So, so this light net um, was supposed to actually, you know, get people on it to play this different game, respectful, empathic, enable each other to flourish and support each other and and come to, to peaceful conflict, to, to decent, let's call it conflict resolution. And I think right now, the closest to it, and I don't think it's about applying, <laughs> you are, it's about just, as you said, you were Rob or both of you, it's about doing. So, so come join the movement. We are looking for allies at the Consilience Project conciliansproject.org. We are looking for allies. I mean, if, for example, Sapien Network wants to catalyze the movement around the Consilience Project, that would be phenomenal. I mean, we, are, we, are, we don't have a platform right now for the movement. How will we? How will it start? We do not know. And, and as I mentioned, Daniel Schmachtenberger says it cannot be catalyzed, I mean, like with a flag bearer, but if you create the infrastructure, like similar to Nakamoto, how he threw it mm. there, if you create that, then the tribes will, will start emerging and, and crystallizing and uh, let's see what happens. But those, those people, the point is they will have to go through the consilience, so-called schooling, right? I mean, to read the papers which are posted. There already are papers there which are you know, they're shedding light on a lot of misunderstandings and issues. One very simple, for example, with the BRICS uh, during the Black uh, Lives Matter movement. There were a set of BRICS which actually, they were just lying there. Nobody put them anywhere. And someone took a photo and then 
the, the, the BLM took it and they said, oh, the right wing placed them there to use them and throw at us. And then <laughs> the right wing said, no, the Antifa <laughs> put them here to throw them at us. So they were just using them. They were using that photo as a symbol, which didn't have to do in any way with the truth. So, so the Consilience Project is actually writing pieces and shedding light on the truth in, in such instances, for example, and also helping people understand the role, yes, of, of community in a democracy and how to organize mm. themselves and so on and so forth. And I think it's very important. What you have to offer, I think, is crucial, actually. It's not only, it's not applying, you are doing it. So you are creating this platform, which I see, although I know it's embryonic, and I know, yes, it's uh, experimental, but this is what we are doing here. We are experimenting with Game B. So we need you as allies. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, to add to that, that's, uh, I've also, I've, I've, I actually have seen, uh, you know, some of the videos and talks that, you know, Daniel has given, uh, and I'm a big fan of his work. And it's definitely something that we resonate with uh, at Sapien. So yeah, I can definitely see some collaboration uh, on the horizon. You know, I find it interesting, right, about there being a difference between uh, catalyzing a movement and incentivizing a movement. And I think the latter is, is actually quite doable now, you know, starting with Satoshi, but also just all the sort of uh, just the explosion of um, new incentive models that better align people, uh, you know, within their communities and among communities. I think that is a technological approach to ensuring the mass adoption of Game B in a way that is unstoppable. And yes, and exactly. So, you know, to an extent, to a great extent, the incentive is that we're suffocated in game A and we don't want to be there, right? As you say, how can I apply? <laughs> I'm ready to get into game B. But on the other side, as you say, the perverse incentives, yes, I mean, we can definitely look at, into other incentives. And that's why Daniel wants to keep the Consilience Project pure, let's put it this way. So he doesn't want, uh, I mean, the funding to be, to have any strings attached. Yeah, like, let, let's say, yes, it's like, um, okay, uh, Daniel, you will advise me. And if you advise me how to be more successful, then I will donate to your project. <laughs> this is not going to work. Right? So that's why he uh, designed the project as a nonprofit and only donations. He accepts donations like a simply nonprofit without any strings attached. And, uh, the project itself, yes, is thinking about the incentives, but I'm just wondering if you have any ideas about new incentives, new ways to incentivize, because I'm sure you've thought about it quite. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely multiple directions that, I, you know, we can go in with this. You know, one, one, one area that we've been researching quite a bit, and uh, Rob, feel free to jump in uh, at any point here too, but really the creation of uh, something that we're uh, calling tribe tokens. And uh, this ability for a community to come around uh, some sort of token or representation of progress and the flourishing of the community. And we feel that if you give uh, every community this opportunity to sort of launch their own tribe token and use that as a sort of metric to uh, gauge the performance of the community, but also sort of align incentives with people within, within that community, I think that could be an interesting sort of, you know, uh, system by which you can have, you know, a, a wide variety of communities, each with their sort of own token and uh, token economy to transact uh, uh, with and, um, you know, sort of build a network like that. 
Yeah, I I think that is uh, the right path forward, and that it's all about setting up the right incentives around that token. You know, it has to be grounded in something real and really be advancing the mission of a community and tied to growing that community and advancing its values. And that's where we're we're looking today, figuring out how what's the best way to do that. But uh, I think it's definitely a very powerful powerful tool. Mm. Yes, and I think that this hand in hand goes hand in hand with that, what I was saying. Yes, so actually, how do you design that token to enable the flourishing of the community? And this comes back to this architecture is politics, because in that token and how you design it, it's spending and it's attribution. That's the policy. That's the politics of your community. And all the culture will, will, uh, grow around that so it's a great responsibility will it bring to flourish or will it destroy it you know so so the game itself i think is determined by that so it's a really not an easy feat i think you you are undertaking a very very great challenge here mm. yeah yeah and Mihal, we've uh we, we have thought quite a bit about this and you know it might might be an entirely uh you know, uh, we might need to set up an entirely different podcast just to, to go into detail with like, you know, the, the specific approach that we're, we're imagining. But yeah, you know, I do want to be respectful of your time. You know, maybe can I, can I get a sense of like, just, you know, how much, how much more, how much more time you have left? Uh, we have time for more questions or should we start wrapping up? I think I'm also considering the audience because I mean, <laughs> we, we've been talking for kind of, you know, uh, one and a half hours or maybe a bit more. I, I think I, I would like to talk to you. I could talk to you for years and, and you know, so yes, maybe you want to ask some more, but I think <laughs> we can also have another podcast as, as you. I think uh, a good, good place to wrap up would be uh, your, your vision of what, what a future game B tribe might, might look like. Well, this is, uh, you know, this is something which will be revealed to us. I think we have a lot of examples of that vision, and it's just so simple. I mean, it's really simple. Eleanor Ostrom has created rules for for uh, the commons. How do we come together and, and nourish the nature around us? Let's say a state park or a lake or the oceans, not to overfish and so on and so forth. So it's uh, it's not necessarily a tribe or another, I think we have to establish in the first place the principles and the like she designed the principles of the commons in much the way manner and uh, in much uh, the same manner we have to determine similar principles for this governance of uh, of the tribe, if you want to call it this way, or governance in game B in which uh, the community flourishes around whatever you want. Let's say the tribe is fishermen. So let's stop and prevent, yes, that uh, that mass fishing industry, which depletes our oceans. And it's just so cruel also to them. And come back to, okay, everybody is fishing. Let's say, why I, I, I'm fishing one fish for now because I make dinner and I will eat and that will not destroy the ecosystem. There. That will not and not cause an ecological disaster. So it all depends. I think it depends on the nature of the tribe, on on the purpose of the tribe, on the ethos. The whole point is to work in harmony with with the natural laws, coming back to, to Buckminster Fuller. So not to forget that we are a part of, of uh, 
of this planet and we are not its conquerors. For now, we have acted and that is game A. We have acted and keep acting as the apex predator on the planet. So we have subjugated all the other species and everything else and natural resources and are using them in a way which is so insane. I mean, literally, there are companies now which are now I own gas resources of the planet or all the forests. I'm going to cut the trees and sell them and I'm enriching myself. Who am I to do that? We, we all belong to this planet just as much as the trees do belong. So I think what is important is to redefine our place in the universe and on spaceship Earth and operate it in a way which is harmonious because that's the only way in which we also can flourish. And hopefully we will find again those rules from where we started and embed them in your infrastructures to guide the tribe to flourishing. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's truly beautiful. And I think, uh, you know, the digital space really offers a place, uh, a sort of garden where we can, you know, have these experiments and uh, create systems that are sort of focused on flourishing. And uh, yeah, that's really just um, really powerful. I really appreciate all the work that you do in this space to, to drive this forward. And um, you know, if uh, for our listeners, Mihaela, do you want to uh, leave any sort of uh, you know way that they can follow you or your work? Uh, you know, what's the best way that they can uh, stay in contact? And and I also before this, I want to commend you for your work, Ankit. I you know that from the very beginning, Ankit and Rob. Yes, I was a fan when I heard of what you are after, let's put it this way, with Sapien Network. And um, definitely, yes, now seeing how you evolved from the, the initial spark with this uh, token for flourishing community ideas. And, and I have very big hope and great hope that, uh, that we, will, we will see the light sooner than later. So for your audience, uh, the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. And if you are not on LinkedIn, just Google my name <laughs> anywhere. You can find me on YouTube. You can uh, you can find uh, my contact information on on the internet. I live uh, I live very much there, and all my work is there as well. All right. Well, thank you, Mihaela, so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're definitely going to have you back again for another episode. But we really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Forward to listening thank you, to other guests as well. Yes. It's, it's, it's a great thing, this uh, tribe of one. Awesome conversation. It's been a pleasure having you, Mihaela. Thank you, Rob.